Do you have questions about life and faith and God that remain unanswered? Do you feel like the Christian cliches are shallow and don't really get to the truth? Is this whole Christian thing rather uncertain for you? And, and does that uncertainty exclude you from true spirituality? My name is Skip Collins, and for the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to explore concepts of life and faith and the Bible and Christianity. We'll challenge our traditional views and ideas, which at times will probably make us a little uncomfortable, but hopefully, we'll come out on the other side, more connected to our faith, to God, and to what we believe. So let's jump in to deeply spiritual, but rather uncertain. Most of you are aware that I live in South Africa, in spite of the fact that my accent might say something different. But in South Africa, we are obsessed with the big five. We all take trips to Kruger, and the question always is, did you see the big five? They are the elephant, the rhino, the lion, the leopard, and the buffalo. If you're not in South Africa, you should come and visit, because seeing these and many other animals in the wild of Africa is like something you have never experienced before, I promise you. But I was wondering the other day, who decided what the big five were? I mean, why not the giraffe? They are so majestic to watch, and quite frankly, the buffalo is really ugly. Well, apparently, it was decided years ago by some big game hunters because they say that these were the most difficult animals to hunt. But the truth is that somebody just made it up. For almost a year now, I've been thinking about the major themes of the Bible. Of course, there's no place in the Bible that says, here are the major themes. Any list of themes that anyone comes up with is purely subjective. Somebody just makes it up. But as I've looked at a lot of these lists that people put out there, some have just one theme. It's Jesus. And if I had to say that there was one theme of the Bible, that's probably what I would say, because I believe that everything points to Jesus. But then other people have come up with lists that are like 30 different themes or sometimes even more. But because this is such a subjective exercise, you can't actually say, well, this person's right and this person's wrong. You can kind of question why they would include a certain theme as a theme, and you could disagree or, dis or agree, but that's about it. I would say up front that I haven't done as much research on this as I would like to have, but I do have some views based on many years of reading and studying this book. So these are my big five when it comes to the Bible themes. I don't claim that these are the only themes of Scripture, but these are the ones that I continually see as I read through the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, I think I prefer the word threads to themes. These threads weave their way into so many of the stories and poems and letters of the Bible. 
Sometimes we just get a little glimpse of it, and in other stories, it's right there in our face, but it's always there. I suppose some of you have had the same experience as me when you see a snag in the carpet and you decide to pull the thread out. Well, probably you're not stupid enough to try it, but I have. And it's a disaster because that thread runs through the entire carpet. And if you keep pulling it, you have a real mess on your hands. These threads of scripture are like that. They're always there. And if you start pulling on it, you really begin to see it. So here are my big five. Those threads that I see from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus, grace, justice, redemption, and mission. And those aren't in any particular order at all. But these are obviously quite broad, and so you could add a number of subplots to each one of them. But here's why I think these threads or themes are important because they help us to interpret difficult passages and then to keep things in context. When we come across a passage or a story that's difficult to understand, sometimes it's helpful to use these threads as a filter to look through. Let me give you an example. There's this woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet with some incredibly expensive perfume. Well, Judas is outraged. He says, we could have sold that perfume. Do you know how much we could have gotten for it? Do you know what we could have done with all that money? You could have financed our soup kitchen for years. And Jesus' answer was, the poor you will have with you always. Now, on first glance, it seems as if Jesus is giving us an excuse not to help the poor. They will always be there, so don't worry about it right now. In fact, I have heard people proof text this verse in exactly that way. But as we'll see next week, there is this thread of justice that runs through the entire Bible. So that can't be what Jesus meant, and we have to look at that verse in a different way. I want to unpack all these threads over the next few weeks, but for now, let me give you a brief overview of each. First of all, everything points to Jesus. It's a thread that if you start pulling on will unravel the entire carpet, but not really in a bad way. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I recently spoke into the subject in length. And if you've listened to episode four, it's called It All Starts With Jesus. Um, If you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to do that. The whole of the Old Testament and all of history is moving in a direction toward Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. On a side note, I want to make a suggestion that I should have done back in episode four for some further reading on that particular subject. Greg Boyd is a theologian and a pastor in Minnesota that has done extensive research on this subject. He looks at specifically how the violent images of God in the Bible actually point to Jesus and particularly Jesus on the cross. 
He's written a 1,300-page, two-volume theological work called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. I've read it, and I do recommend it if you are prone to reading 1,300-page theological books. But if not, he has a shortened version called The Cross Vision, which I would have read, except that I was already well into the long version before Cross Vision came out. Anyway, if you want your mind stretched and blown, then check out Greg Boyd. He's got a podcast as well and a blog called Renew. I'll put some links in the show notes below. The next thread that we'll get into next week is justice. And I can't wait. In all the blogs and the books that I've looked at on themes of Scripture, most people, in fact, almost everybody leaves out justice. You have got to be kidding me. It is such a critical thread to understanding and unpacking the Bible and the world that we live in. Jesus' first public recorded words in Luke. We're reading from the book of Isaiah about justice. Let me read this to you. Luke 4, it comes from. Jesus reads this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. It would have all been fine, except then he added, These words are fulfilled in me today. Jesus' ministry was about justice, but we'll get into that next week. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Redemption is another important thread that we see throughout the Bible. Jesus came to fix what was broken, and we talk about this. We'll also talk about salvation, about atonement, and some other really fascinating subjects. Then there's mission. And again, this is not often spoken about when it comes to themes of Scripture, but at least in my mind, it's a thread that runs through the entire Bible. In fact, I think it's one of the big points of the Bible. There is this story that runs through all of history. It's the story of God and a bunch of broken and messed up people that jump into the story along the way. And the story isn't over just because the Bible was canonized in 367 AD. The story continues and we are invited to step into the story to be part of the mission of God, to bring hope and reconciliation and justice and redemption to the world. The last thread, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time today, is grace. One would think that grace is an easy subject. I mean, nobody deconstructs grace, right? Everybody knows what grace is, but sometimes I'm not so sure. There are all kinds of definitions of grace out there. I've heard that grace is God's unmerited favor, and I love that. 
or that grace is what I receive that I didn't earn and that I don't deserve. It's beautiful. Back in the 90s, Phil Yancey wrote the book, What's So Amazing About Grace? It was incredibly radical at the time because he entered into the LGBTQ conversation years before anybody else dared talk about it. And looking back, I'm surprised that the book didn't get more pushback than it did. Maybe it's because Christianity seems so much more polarized today than it was back in the 90s. My guess is that if he wrote it today, it would be much more of a problem. He spoke about his friend, who was a prominent evangelical filmmaker that came out as gay late in his life, and the struggle that it was to show grace in that situation. The point that he made in the book overall was this, that while there is nothing you can do to get God to love you more, there is also nothing you can do to make him love you less. I remember the first time I read those words. They were radical to me. I got the part about God not loving you more, but I was sure there were things that could make God love me less. Anyway, read the book if you haven't. It really is worth reading, even though it was written back in the 90s. But here's the debate that I see around grace. Is grace free or not? One of the classic books in this regard was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer back in 1937. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. In it, he coined the phrase cheap grace. Here's what he said. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism, without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And people have picked up on this phrase and used it for a very long time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an incredible man who stood against Hitler and the Nazi regime and even worked underground with organizations that tried to have Hitler assassinated. He was arrested in 1943 and executed in 1945. The stature of the man makes me really hesitant to disagree with him. He certainly understood discipleship and the cost of following Jesus in ways that I will never understand. But what I can't buy is the idea of attaching any kind of required action to grace. If there's a requirement of baptism, communion, or anything else you might want to add, is that really grace? If the definition of grace is what I don't deserve and what I can't earn, then to attach anything to it means that it's not grace, it's something else. I would agree that there is a cost to discipleship, 
But discipleship is not the same thing as grace. Grace is something that I can't earn and that I don't deserve. I would say that grace is incredibly costly to the person that's giving grace. But the person that receives grace, it's absolutely free or it isn't grace. The Bible speaks of the fact that we are saved by grace. One of the flagship verses that has been used for years and that I've used over and over again is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It says this, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So grace is not about anything that we do. Grace is about what Christ has done, full stop. There's not another line in that paragraph. It is full stop. Grace is not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done. One of my favorite pictures of grace shows up during the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's been tortured through the night and mocked and ridiculed by Roman soldiers. These same soldiers had drug him out of the city and pounded nails through his hands and feet. And now they're gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross as Jesus hangs in utter agony. What is Jesus' response? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He doesn't say, boys, if you say you're sorry, then I'll forgive you. Or if you follow all the rules from now on, you go to church every week and you read your Bible every day, then I'll forgive you. In fact, there is no indication in any way, shape, or form that they would change their behavior from this point forward, but Jesus still declares them forgiven. He doesn't require any form of repentance. I think that for most of us, we would at least attach repentance to this idea of grace. But Jesus doesn't seem to do that, at least not when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. He just grants it. But you say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus preach repent and believe? Yes, he did. I mean, both Matthew and Mark record that after the death of John, Jesus began to preach this message of repent and believe. All of my life, I have attached those words, repent and believe, to the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't seem Jesus did that. Jesus attached it to what it means to live in the kingdom of God, not what it means to be forgiven. Repent is literally to change your mind, but doing so in such a way that it changes how you live. Now, you understand Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience. 
and explaining that everything is changing. You don't have to live by the old covenant. You don't have to live by the law. You can think differently. It was about living that Jesus was talking about, not about forgiveness. And by the way, that message of repent and believe is just as valid for us today as it was for the Jews 2,000 years ago. Repent, Jesus says, from those patterns of self-destruction that you are living in. It is destroying you. You don't have to live that way. Repent from the habits and the addictions that hold you in bondage. There is a better way to live. It's the way of freedom and the way of life. But I would suggest that that has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sin. That is given to us by grace. It's like Jesus says, you've already been forgiven. Now live like it. I mean, that was Paul's message to the church in Galatia. He says, you have been given freedom. Now live in that freedom. Now walk in that freedom. I would suggest that this thread of grace runs through the entire story of the Bible. I used to read the Bible with the idea that grace and forgiveness had to be earned. Now, where do we get that? Well, we get it from the Old Testament. In order for sin to be atoned for, a sacrifice had to be made. The forgiveness had to be earned. Okay, here's a way out idea. Humor me for a minute. Don't turn this off. Just hang with me. What if God actually didn't need the sacrificial system in the first place? What if God didn't actually require a sacrifice in order to forgive sins? The first time I came across that idea, my brain went into overload. <laughs> if you're really old, you might remember the TV show Lost in Space. I mean, you got to be really old like me. But on the show, they had this robot that had fear issues. And whenever there was a problem, he would wave his arms up and down. They were made out of dryer exhaust hose. And he would say, danger, danger, danger. Well, that's exactly how I felt when I first heard this theory that maybe God doesn't need sacrifice to forgive sin. Because so much of our Christian evangelical doctrine depends on the fact that there has to be a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. Something has to die. But what if that's not right? There are certainly numerous hints of this in the Old Testament. In fact, you find it in 1 Samuel, Hosea, Proverbs, Psalms, Amos, and Jeremiah, God specifically says, I don't need your sacrifices. Or he says, I don't want your sacrifices. Or I am sick and tired of your sacrifices. And it always goes on to say, what I want is your love. What I want is your obedience. What I want is for you to connect with me. Grace is God's choosing to forgive with no strings attached. 
In the New Testament, there is a verse in John that speaks of grace, and it's used extensively um, by conservative evangelicalism, and so I thought it's worth talking about. It comes from John 1, chapter 14. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The phrase grace and truth is the part that I want us to talk about. See, we've kind of taken that and made it a model for pastoral and church ministry. I mean, at one time I used it pretty extensively. And here's how I would say it. Yes, we have to show grace, but we also have to preach the truth. First of all, I cannot believe how arrogant that sounds to me now. Because what I was really talking about was my version of the truth is the truth. And so what I preach is the truth. I mean, does that sound arrogant to you or is it just me? But what is really even more dangerous about this is that many people believe that truth trumps grace. If the truth hurts, then so be it. If the truth divides, then so be it. In fact, many people have changed the phrase from grace and truth to truth and grace kind of subconsciously. I mean, that kind of sounds Freudian to me, doesn't it? Let me give you a modern day example of what I mean. We have done this truth trumps grace thing with the LGBTQ community. Now, I use the word we in a very broad sense, talking about the modern evangelical church, but also including myself in the we, because I am just as guilty. Truth has triumphed grace. We have said, if you choose to live this lifestyle, then we can have nothing to do with you, and you will have to leave the church. And my friends, we have done severe damage to people in the name of truth because we believed that truth trumps grace. My belief and the way that I choose to live my life now is that grace trumps truth all the time. I've adopted a phrase I've used for a number of years now. It says that if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of grace. Now, people have challenged me on this phrase, um, and they said it's about finding balance between grace and truth, not about one trumping the other. My argument is that that's fine for Jesus, but we are not Jesus. We are broken and flawed human beings, and so we're just not going to get it right, and we're going to err one way or the other almost all the time, and if I'm going to make a mistake, I want it to be a mistake of grace rather than truth. In fact, I now question my long interpretation of that verse. See, to make it a model for ministry seems like a real stretch. The context of the verse is speaking about who God is, not what God does. God is grace and truth. 
Now, if I make it a model for my life rather than for my ministry, my life becomes about grace, the way I treat people, and truth, the way I live my life in front of people, authentic, transparent, vulnerable. I mean, that's who Jesus was, and that's who God is, and that's how I want to live. In fact, I would say that's how every pastor ought to live their life, grace and truth. I treat people with grace, and I live my life in front of them with authenticity and transparency and vulnerability. Man, there is so much more that I could say on this issue of grace. And I'm sure as time goes on that we will come back to it again and again because it's a subject that is a prominent thread that runs throughout the whole Bible. As you read the Bible in the future, I would suggest two things. First of all, look for this thread as it weaves its way through the stories of Scripture. And secondly, When you come across difficult passages that you don't know what to do with, look at it through the lens of grace, a grace that requires nothing in return. So next week, we're going to talk about justice. It's going to be so much fun. We release a podcast every Monday, and I've got a plan up until Easter, but then I am hoping to start doing some interviews. I would love to sit down with people that have stories of struggling with uncertainty and doubt or stories of deconstruction and reconstruction and and people that would be willing to sit and talk with me about it. So if you're interested, um, drop me a note Uh, My details are all in the show notes, so you can find me there. Um, But I would love to hear your story. I would love to chat with you. Um, For now, that's it for this week. We will see you next week. Shalom. Shalom.